Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're still working through verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is Paul's second prayer. He prays in chapter 1 that they would have the strength to comprehend God's power towards them. Now he prays that they would have the strength to comprehend his love. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the transition point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians from what God has done for the Christian and he's transitioning into, therefore, in light of that, here's how you live. Now that you've been saved by Christ, Jew and the Gentile have been made into a new man. How is that new man to live? So he's going to ask us to do. But he's not going to ask us to do in our own strength and in our own power. For we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That began before the foundation of the world when he chose us in him to be holy and blameless before him. And chose us as adoption, as sons, full recipients of the inheritance of Christ. And so is he going to create this new man and leave us to do it now in our own strength and in our own power and in our own way? You know, the question I think Christians struggle with so often is, can I change? Can I really change? Maybe you see the selfishness in your own heart and you know someone that's so generous and you think, could I ever be like that? Or maybe you're in a marriage that's difficult. You know, in, in marriage counseling, the first session a lot of times, the impossibilities laid on the table for 20 years, for 30 years, for 35 years, 
for seven years, however long. These have been the facts. There is no hope. Of course we're looking towards divorce. What other hope is there? Did you not listen to the data? Yeah, but do you know Christ? Yes, I know Christ. Well, back here is a cross. A fall happened before that. But then Christ showed up. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. And you have promises to be exactly like him for all eternity. And your marriage is smashed between this cross when Christ died for sinners and raised from the dead so that you may walk in newness of life. And the promise that you'll be exactly like him. And the argument is it's hopeless. There's no opportunity for change. Baloney. The risen Christ, the promise to being like him. Christ not only can forgive your sin, but he can change you so that you're unrecognizable. I don't care how many years. I don't care how long. That's what he does. You can change. You who are caught up in addiction, you can change. Don't believe the lie that Christ can merely forgive you, but he can't change you. Don't believe the lie that your quick temper came from your grandpa and then your father. No, you're to be conformed into the image of Christ. And you're right, you can't change yourself. That's what this text says. But it says Christ can change you in a way that you walk in a way worthy of your calling. Children, five-year-olds, four-year-olds, seven-year-olds, ten-year-olds, could you actually consider your brother or sister more important than yourself? Well, I want it. Could you change to the point where you actually want your brother or sister to have the thing you want? might feel impossible. You can't change yourself, but Christ can change your heart. That's what this text, it's this transition between Paul that's going to call Christians to live in a certain way. He first wants them to know where the power is going to come from, how the change is going to come. So, Basically, we were halfway through our sermon from two weeks ago, and we're essentially picking up in point three in your notes, but let me just give a real quick review. So the charge of the message is this, to have the Spirit's power working within you, where do we see this? Look at verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, now just think, use your brain for a minute. How rich is that? According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. 
How much power is that? Remember, we talked about this. If Bill Gates gives to you out of his riches, he might give you a million dollars. If he gave you according to his riches, it might be billions of dollars. And Paul's praying that according to the riches of his glory, you may be strengthened with power. You may be strengthened with power through his spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God himself in your inner being. What's your inner being? That's your soul. That's your heart. That's where you think. That's where your desires are. That's where your actions flow out of. Paul's praying that their inner being would be strengthened by the Spirit of God so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see, in your inner being, you can believe lies and then therefore condemnation, therefore uh, uh, sinful worry. All these things can fill your inner being. But when you walk with the Spirit, when you're strengthened by the Spirit and the Spirit speaks truth to you, that sinful worry goes away. Those lies of condemnation, God's done with me, begin to go away. And Christ sits down. That word dwells, remember? It doesn't mean lodge like you lodge in a hotel. It means he sits down. He, he finds his abode in our hearts. That's why Paul got to the end of his life. He called it a fight of faith. See, when you get saved, it's not as though Christ just sits down because, yes, you're given the Holy Spirit. Yes, he lives inside you, but as you stiff-arm the Spirit, as you don't walk with the Spirit of God, but you walk according to the flesh, you bring all that other garbage in to sit down in your heart. But Paul prays that they would be strengthened by the Spirit. In Galatians, he says that you would walk with the Spirit or that you would sow to the Spirit. Why? So that Christ, the reality, the, the, the truth of the matter, that Christ who lives in them is recognized to live in them. And he sits down. And when that happens, a person is grounded there's a foundation in their life. So to have the Spirit's power working in us is to have Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. And number two, to have a foundation of love, that you being rooted and grounded in love. If Christ is sitting down in your heart, you are grounded in love. That is your foundation. That is what defines your actions. And you remember, we defined, we had to define agape love. Agape love is not this, merely just this feeling, but it's a choice. Because agape love, by its very definition, means loving that which doesn't deserve love. It's self-denial love. It's not the love that says, if you give to me, I'll give to you. That's worldly love. It's easy to love the lovable. 
But when we realize Christ loved us when we weren't lovable, and then that love is poured into our hearts, now all of a sudden it doesn't make sense. I fell out of love with my spouse. Well, we weren't talking about agape love at all. That's what the marriage vows are about. In sickness and in health, not just in health. See, it's a commitment, it's a choice that I'm self-sacrificially, whether you deserve it or not, am going to show love. And so the Christian is grounded in that love. And then we saw in three, we, we touched on it briefly, being rooted and grounded in love, we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. What's that mean? That means that your comprehension of the love of Christ is enhanced as you love each other, as we do it together. Someone says, well, I know the love of Christ, but I just, I'm not around people. I only have pets. Pets love me. People don't love me. Well, you can't know the love of Christ if that's what you do. If you just say, you know, I, I do what I do to avoid people. Well, well the bummer is you're not going to know the love of Christ much if you're not loving one another. Let me give you an illustration. A soldier that goes to war and watches some of his, some of his fellow comrades die in battle for love of fellow man and country. That soldier, you, if you're not a soldier, you can try. But when that national anthem is played, it's different. Why? Because they've loved like that. That bullet could have hit them, but it hit their buddy. You better stand up. You better know the type of love that those soldiers shed for our freedom, you see? If you try to do your Christianity outside of difficult people, you see, that's what the church is. People that are totally different, we're still struggling with sin. This is God's perfect plan. Why? He wants you to know His love. So He gives us each other, and we're difficult, if we're honest. It's not easy always having a relationship with me. Ask my wife. But for Laura to know the love of Christ better, it's evidently good to be married to me, honey. That's what he's saying here in, in point three. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints What? Look at what he says. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, I'll give you my best attempt at helping you understand what this means. But the very end of that verse says, which surpasses knowledge. So, let's pray for the Spirit's work <laughs> to help us as we look at incomprehensible love. 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth? What is the breadth? What is the length? What is the height? What is the depth of the love of Christ? Breadth has to do with broadness, expansive spreading. The love of Christ is broad. It's expansive. You know, literally, you could do a million sermons about the love of Christ. There's no end to it. So I'm limiting myself basically to Ephesians. Just because we can't stay here forever, although we will be there forever in heaven, being amazed by the love of Christ. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians about the breadth of his love? Remember back in chapter 2, verse 11? He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you, do you see how broad it is? All the way to the Gentiles, the love of Christ. All the way to what the Jews called the dogs. They considered them enemies. The love of Christ goes as far as not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. It's not as though the Jew is just becomes an Israelite. It's that God takes the Jew and the Gentile and he makes one new man. A new humanity. That next week he's going to ask that new humanity to live a certain way. Creating in himself one new man, taking the place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and he preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. His love is broad. Let me just give you a practical implication how this plays out in our lives. This is why I could not be a pastor of a church that was content in being a conservative, small, little, isolated, marked off from the world club. Numbers of the church don't matter as far as whether the church is real 
or validated. But you tell me this, how are we to be filled with the love of Christ, which is a broad love, and that's God's plan, we're his ambassadors, God making his appeal through us, and we hide off over here and sing kumbaya. It's to miss what God is doing, not by the wisdom of man, but through people's lives. Not to their glory, but to the glory of God. Not by human means, not to draw people by carnal means, but to draw them by the living word of God flowing out of God's people. So I just love the illustration of even the building we bought. Our church cannot be an end to itself because God's love in us is a broad love, even to the apartments that are to the west and north of us, which represent the lowest income families in Aberdeen, at least some of them. And then you go to the east, and what do you have? You have the banks and the business executives of downtown. And then you go south, I guess God's love even goes to race car drivers and mechanics and beyond south. But I just love it because God's love is broad. His love needs to flow out of us, needs to match the broadness of God's love. What about the length of Christ's love? So the definition of length is a measurement or extent of something from end to end. Well, in Ephesians, let's see how long his love is. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that goes a long ways back before the world even existed. God's love for you, Christian, began That you were adopted. You were chosen for adoption as sons. So if we're going from end to end, we go a long ways that way. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, we see that he saved us. He brought us to new life so that in the coming ages, that's eternity in the future, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what will never end is you'll never get to heaven and say, that's God's love. That's God's grace. It's immeasurable. It's in the coming ages. It has no end. It's began, it began before the world began. And why is this good news? Because the devil comes to you and says, yeah, God may have loved you last week, but in light of what you did today, he's done loving you. Oh, really? When the love of Christ comes to the Christian before the foundation of the world and extends for all eternity, you actually think God chose you because you were lovable? It's not what the Bible teaches. 
That's not the extent of God's love. What does Scott just read? His steadfast love endures forever. It endures forever. This means God's love for you is not based on your performance. Has God called you to live for him? Yes. Will there be reward for living for him? Yes. Does he love you because you live for him? No. He loved you when you were a sinner, when you were a rebel. See, God didn't go up there and say, which ones do I like and which ones do I not like? I'm going to love the lovable. In fact, he did just the opposite, the scripture says. Not many wise, not many noble. Paul says he chose me to be one of, of the most influential apostles because he was the worst to put on display his love. This is good news for me because it is devastatingly evident every week how far I fall short of what I ought to be for Christ. So we look at the length of his love. The lie is, is that you can run out of rope. Now, I'm almost afraid to say this, but his love and mercy... The, the, the lie comes and says is love and mercy is long, but not that long. You've reached the end of it. And the question I want to ask is, who do you think you are? Because if you think you can reach the end of it, you thought he chose you because of you. Who do you think you are? And then my second question is, who do you think everyone else is? The Bible describes sin as falling short of the glory of God which means it's not just adultery. It's not just saying the F-bomb. It's not just alcoholism. It's not just sins, big sins we do. It's anything we do that falls short of the glory of God. Shovel the snow for not the glory of God. We're called to be thankful in all things when we murmur about the weather. If we can run out of rope, we're all ran, ran out of rope. Did we not? Thank goodness that his steadfast love endures forever. Besides, that mindset is a victim mentality. It, it's pride. If you, if you out-sin the love of God, now Paul says, God's grace always extends higher than sin. Should we then sin so the grace may increase? May it never be. That doesn't make sense because the evil master of your life that was bringing death to your life was sin. Sin reigned. Christ comes, slays sin. So why would it make sense to go choose to submit to an evil master now when grace can be your master? He saved you from the thing that's destroying your life. But it's a victim mentality to say, yeah, Christ's love is great, but it's not so great it can forgive what I've done. You don't know what I've done. Oh, really? You think Christ's love was that impotent? That short that you ran to the end of the rope? 
you don't know the doctrine of man very well. Because if you all ran out of rope, we all ran out of rope. So let's think of the height of the love of Christ. Right away at the beginning of Ephesians 1, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavenly places. Are you kidding me? Christian, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not one of them is kept from you. Not one of them is kept from you in his spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it not only stops there, because in Ephesians 2, 6, when we're raised to new life, we're told that, that he raised us up with him. In chapter 1, he Paul shows us that Christ is above every rule and authority over all the powers of the earth. He's writing to the Ephesians who had all these Greek gods. He's saying Christ rose above all of them to the very highest place and that he's the head of the church. He fulfills all things. That blows our mind. That's Christ. But then... Verse 6 of chapter 2 is even more mind-blowing. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, to be adopted as sons, meaning you don't just get the inheritance, the riches this son is going to get, but you also, in those days, gain the position. And Christ takes the highest throne in heaven... And we're told that this sinner that was a child of wrath, a rebel, dead in their trespasses and sins, is seated with Christ on that throne. So that what we do throughout all eternity is described as ruling. It says Christians will judge angels. How are you doing comprehending the height of the love of Christ? Just a couple more verses on height. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. So get the picture. This is God. Who inhabits eternity. All right, you got your minds around that? The one who's high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. Just this week, Eden was sitting me down again and saying, help me understand. God has to have a beginning. No, he doesn't. He's outside of time. He created time. I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. So, the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, which means not only he's pure, he's set apart, he's cut apart, he's totally unique. I'll never forget uh, Paul Washer saying, 
Is God more like the microbe on your toilet or the archangel of God? And he says, neither. Both of them are created, but God is holy. He's set apart unlike anyone else, all right? So the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, he says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. To revive is to be lifted up with him. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. The way up in Christianity is the way down in confession and repentance. What's the difference between confession and repentance? Confession is agreeing with God about your sin. Don't make an excuse. Don't make it sound better than it. Don't make it sound better than it is. Call it what it is. Selfishness. God, I was selfish here. God, that selfishness deserves eternal hell, separation from you. What's repentance then? If that's confession, repentance is there's no hope in my sin. My only hope is in the Savior. So repentance turns and finds life in Christ. The one who humbles himself is lifted up. God's love lifts him up to heights we can't fathom. And then depth. So this is the measurement. If height is from the base to the top, depth is from the base to the bottom. Right? How, how deep is the love of Christ? Well, as far as we got to look is Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. You lived. You lived there. The devil was playing this song the, and, and, and giving you the beat that you were marching to. Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. By nature, you weren't a good person that got tricked and did a bad thing. You were by nature children of wrath. By nature, dead in your trespasses and sins. You see, we are spoiled beyond what we know. We are spoiled beyond what we know. Have you ever had that thought when you've been miserably sick for several days? Maybe it's your throat. Maybe it's every time you lay down, you cough, you can't get to sleep. And you tell yourself, man, I take for granted feeling good when I feel good. Because if only I could just feel normal, not have this sore throat or 
not have this headache. And in, the, in that moment, we have some wisdom in our mind. We recognize the grace of God on all the days we take for granted. See, when Paul says we were by nature children of wrath, if you really want to know what that means, you need to study the wrath of God. To know the wrath of God, you got to know his flaming holiness. The terror of a holy God with omnipotent power unleashing judgment on deserving rebels. That was the definition of your life before God saved you. When God decides to define your life, He called you children of wrath. Yeah. See, we we have to think about what we've been saved from if we're going to know the love of Christ. How low does the love of Christ go? It goes all the way down to the chief of sinners. It goes that low. Romans 2.5 talks about this wrath, or beginning in verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these sinful things. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Meaning there's people that have been judging other people for their sins, hypocritically judging them for their sins, and they're not afraid of God because they think God's happy with them because God's delayed judgment. See, this time of mercy and kindness is meant to lead them to repentance, but it's led these people to pride. They think they're better than other people. And then, what is it, well, how does he conclude this? He's, he says, but because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You've probably heard me say this before. That, that verse gives me the picture. There used to be the Rushmore water slides out in the Black Hills that were up on that hill. That hill's gone now and there's business buildings there or something. But those water slides, there is the ones in the middle that had this tube, clear tube, that would fill up with water. You'd sit down in front of it, it would fill up with water and they'd hit a button and then all that water would be released and wash you down. God's kindness. People are thinking God's happy with me because I keep sinning. I'm in rebellion. I'm not repenting. I'm not repenting. He hasn't done nothing to me. My business keeps succeeding. But he says, be careful because God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance because every sin you do is storing up more and more wrath that on judgment day the button's going to get pushed and surely in a wash of great waters their prayers will not be heard in that moment but what has Christ done? Christ has came, got between us and God's wrath, he's absorbed it he became a propitiation he took that wrath for us John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, that's that, that's that same picture. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So comprehend that. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It does not say God shows his love for us in that when we finally got our life together and we got our act together, then Christ saw sinners that are worthy to die for and he died for them. But God's love is shown most clearly that he died for us when we were still sinners. That's how low that's how deep the love of Christ goes, all right? I have to do Romans 8 because he uses these the same sort of words. Romans 8, verse 31. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn here. Right after he talked about God's love that began for them before the foundation of the world in their election, and in their calling, and in their justification. Promise to conform them into the image of Christ. Then he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Do you realize Christ is praying for you right now? Christian, Christ is praying for you right now? With Judas, Christ says, go do what you came to do. Go do it. With Peter, he said, Satan came. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. So when you're restored after your fall, then strengthen the brothers. Don't play the victim. Christ is praying for you, Christian. Christ is praying for you, Christian. He's interceding for you. He died for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation shall, or distress Tribulation comes, the devil says, see, God doesn't love you. That's not true. Christ said we would have tribulation. Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We shouldn't be surprised. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, not from all these things, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whether we go forward or backward or up or down or no matter the circumstances, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. It surpasses knowledge. That's what verse 19 says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is what Christ does. He fills everything to the max. In Ephesians 1.19 
He prays that we would know the immeasurable riches of his power towards us. In Ephesians 2, 7, he, he prays that we would know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Or he says that's what we'll experience in the future. In Ephesians 3, 8, he says we're to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What's the end of all this love? That you may be, be filled with all the fullness of God. Imagine that. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled means it's the word plero, which means to make full, to fill to the full. It's used all throughout the New Testament. It speaks of total dominance. To be filled is to be dominated by that you may be dominated by the fullness of God as God's love is comprehended in your mind. As, it, as, as you look at it, God begins to dominate your life. If you're filled with the love of Christ, guess what there's nothing left for? Selfishness. Because the love we're talking about is selfless love. And Paul's praying that the church as they love each other, as they submit to the leading of the Spirit, would comprehend the love of Christ. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. What's the fullness of God? The Spirit of God. Look at the way God loved us. God didn't say, I'm eternal, so I'm going to give you a little bit of me, I'm going to give you a little bit of me, and I can do this for billions of people because I'm so big. That's not what he did. The fullness of God fills the believer. Now, you can stiff arm the Spirit and bring in all this garbage and believe lies, or you can trust, believe the words of God, let Christ sit down, be filled with the love of God in your life. So much more to say, but I see we're out of time. And so then he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Did you catch that? Now to him who is able. Yeah, pastor, I can't, I can't. It's not you. You're his workmanship. He began with you before the foundation of the world. And now the life you live is not by your own power, it's by the power of Christ. Now to him who is able to do. The whole rest of this is about doing. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, here Paul invents a word, it means super abundantly, than all we ask or think. He's able to do more than you ask or think. I'm always going to have a temper like my grandpa. Really? I don't know if that's true. I think God, through Christ, can change you more than that. According to the power at work within us. That's what you got to see. You try to do it on your own and you're a fool. We are weak, but he is strong. And he shows his power in us when we walk by faith according to what God says in his word. That's what it means to walk with the Spirit. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.